Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode of League of Legends. I'm thoroughly enjoying the World Cup, not just because of the football we get to watch on TV, but also because of the amount of guests that we're bringing into our beautiful country that we call home, Malaysia. And today, it's the first time with us in Malaysia. I'm not sure if he's actually been to our country before. I'd like to welcome Martin O'Neill. So, right off the bat, is this your first trip here? It is, Adam. Yes, absolutely. First time ever. I hope you're enjoying yeah. it. It's brief. Uh, it's been fantastic. It's been really short, but it's really been brilliant. And it's been brilliant having you here as well. Now, this show is usually where I, I track the career of whoever's in the hot seat. But because of the sheer breadth of your career, mm. which spans, I think, over 50 years. Yes, it does. Yeah. It's mm. not enough time. I only have, say, 90 minutes of you. So I'm going to approach this, treat this a little bit differently. Just going to go through... Moments during your career, mm -hmm. and we'll see where the conversation okay, takes yeah. us. So, going back to your early days, you have a lot of siblings. Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I have four brothers and four sisters. Unfortunately, one of my sisters died a few months ago. I'm sorry to hear but, that. Yeah, but, um, um, but yeah, and I really come in the middle. I mean, I come from a, an Irish Catholic uh, background and um, uh, born in the, uh, in the early 1950s and uh, kind of growing up um, in a Gaelic, what I call a Gaelic football background, which is probably a cross between uh, soccer and rugby type thing, played with a round ball, but very, 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 very famous in, in Ireland. And then took this fantastic interest in, in soccer and really pr probably watching as a young kid watching the uh, 1960 European Cup final, can you believe it? Long before you were ever born, and uh, and um, uh, watching it in the neighbour's house as well too, because we didn't have a television. And it was between Real Madrid and Eintracht Frankfurt. And Real Madrid, of course, you're watching it in black and white. And their white outfit stood out so much, you know. And then this boy, the Hungarian player called Puska, scored mm. four goals. And De Stefano scored three, and they won seven three. And of course, I was totally smitten. So from that moment onwards, all I wanted to do was play professional football in England. Yeah, it's uh, that's the period where they won five in a row. Uh, it was exactly, and that was the last one. Uh, that was the last one that they had won. The next one, I think they won about 19, 1966 or something like that there, but that was five in a row. For yeah, them. Leeds yeah. based their kit on Real Madrid. That's correct, they? absolutely. The, the white kit. So it really that's how much it. it Popped out, I guess Absolutely. you could say. That just shows you how, what an impact it had on Don Revy as well. Yeah, well, true, yeah. very true. And when you look at your time growing up, you come from a sporting family as well, mm. don't you? Not so much in soccer, let's just no. call it soccer, yeah. but more on the Gaelic sports. More on the Gaelic side, yes. My older brothers were very, very good Gaelic players and, uh, and I enjoyed it myself. Even when I went from, uh, oh, I, I passed what was called the 11 plus and, uh, and that gave you a scholarship to go into grammar school. Uh, didn't necessarily pay the boarding fees, of which my uh, mother and father worked really hard for. But um, uh, yes, so I was kind of following in, in, in their footsteps. They'd been to the same college, and, uh, and the college played Gaelic exclusively, you know, no soccer at all. So only, the only games of soccer we would play would be maybe at lunchtime or something like that, but no organized games. And, um, so playing Gaelic football from 11, essentially, to about 17 or 18 years of age. But what happened then was that my family, my mother and father, moved from the little village that we lived in to go to, to Belfast. Now, Belfast, was that was like moving, I suppose, from, uh, from Stoke-on-Trent, maybe, to London or something like that. 
and um, so and I think she wanted to to give the younger the the younger members of the family a new life or a new a new start in many aspects uh, and probably probably more um, more prospects when you're in the city so but I've got to say I really enjoyed it because then I became a day boy at another grammar school and then I could get home in the evening time and just start to really enjoy it and then I was able to join some soccer clubs as well too uh, or a soccer club in uh, in Belfast at that time and um, and things moved on from then. When it came to the Gaelic sports they're quite protective of it you're not really supposed to play of a foreign... <clears throat> well done absolutely right and there's bands that in those days there were bands if you played if you played soccer and you were found out playing soccer you would be banned from playing Gaelic football and um, and so it, you know it was a rule I'd, that had been devised a way back uh, in in partition days, I think, a way back with the with the Republic of Ireland and the North, and this was maybe I would have said at that stage maybe close to fifty or sixty years in 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 vogue at the time. So thankfully, it's been rectified now, and and, uh, and changes have taken place. But at that time, when I was about fifteen or sixteen, yes, if you were playing soccer, you'd be banned from playing Gaelic. When's the last time you played Gaelic football? I would have said I played. I played. Uh, I played in the big, big stadium in Ireland called Croke Park, oh. and uh, and I played for uh, Derry, and th this would have been about um, be about 1970. Wow. 1970. Yeah, it was so 18. Long time ago, but yeah. I, mean, I presume you still follow. Of course, absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, on um, I do. I do. Yes, Gaelic is still a big part. Uh, I'm going to get an opportunity to watch it on television now, but of course I would do that. When it comes to soccer, I might start calling it football now. Yeah. Uh, what was your position when you started? I, right, okay, I, 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 well, first of all, when you're playing like just uh, normal quad football, it's all over the place, isn't it? You can play anywhere except goalkeeper. And, um, but I, I, I really did play, I then, I got this opportunity to play, as I mentioned, at, um, at a, a youth club. And um, and started to do well. Then a team called Distillery, an Irish league team, came in for me, and I became an amateur player for them. So I kind of played just just really off a centre forward, you know. Um, and um, I, I can't say a number ten, but just yeah, second striker. Okay. Second, we'll go for second striker. All right. And uh, started to score a few goals, and um, we won the Irish Cup. And because of winning the Irish Cup, it got us into what was called then in those days the European Cup Winners' Cup. And uh, we, we were drawn against Barcelona. And I score a goal against Barcelona. It gets a little bit of traction, not just in Northern Ireland, but a little bit of traction in Britain. And within a couple of weeks, I'd gone to Nottingham Forest. Interest happened in Britain. How, how was contact made back then? Because you didn't have mobile phones, so was it calling the club? Was it... Uh, you, you're right. Okay. So what what had happened is that um, um, I, I score this. All right. We'll take it from there. Score this goal against Barcelona. I'm feeling great. I think I'm really good. You know, um, it's not true. But anyway, and um, uh, then it gets a little bit of traction. So much so then, uh, a couple of weeks later, Northern Ireland international team are playing in Belfast against Russia in a in an international game. A couple of the players have to pull out, a couple of the Northern Ireland players pull out because of injury, and 
the, the manager of the Northern Ireland team, a man called Terry Neal, who was at that stage player manager of Hull City, but eventually became manager of Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur. Um, he, instead of, instead of getting another professional player from England to fill in in the squad, he decides, well, listen, we'll bring in this young lad from the Irish League. Easy, you know. So I come and join the squad for a few days. I, and I play, I get on for the last 20 minutes against Russia at Windsor Park. Windsor Park being the home of, uh, of the Northern Ireland team. And uh, I never get a kick at him. But it doesn't really matter because the, the manager of Nottingham Forest is at the game. And, um, and he decides to take a chance on me. It's not, I'm not going to be costing that much money, £15,000. And, uh, and so the following week, I'm actually signing for Nottingham Forest because the manager of Nottingham Forest had watched that game. Now, what he had seen in 20 minutes is, is, is beyond me. It, 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 it wouldn't have been much. But the fact is that I suppose I was getting a, a, a mention, um, I, um, I getting a bit of publicity for want of a better thing. And I think he thought, well, we'll take the chance in this young lad. And who was the manager at the time? The manager was a man, a Scottish man called Matt Gillies, who had had, who had, had success at Leicester City. They'd been to a couple of... Uh, Cup finals in the 60s, very very nice man, very decent man, and uh, and so he was the he was the one. And uh, had the, had I not gone to Nottingham Forest, who knows? Yeah, how long until Brian Clough came into the picture? About uh, uh, I came, I I signed. And I have this little bit of a joke, where I say that uh, um, well, it's not really a joke; it's actually true. I scored, I scored within. About five weeks of my, myself, uh, I scored in the big leagues, in, the, in the, what was called the first division, the Premier League now. And I scored a goal. I came on as a sub against West Bromwich Albion. I scored this goal in the game. It's the best feeling in the world. And I'm so honest, I, you know, within five weeks of coming over, I'm, I mean, I still, I still don't really know the game at all. And then a few weeks later, um, Nottingham Forest go to Old Trafford. And I came on as a sub and I scored a goal against uh, George Best and oh. Dennis Law and Bobby Charlton. And I think, what an easy game this is. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm afraid I, I had to find out that it just wasn't as easy as that. And, um, and for the rest of the season, uh, it became a bit of a struggle for me. And it also became a big, big struggle for the team, Nottingham Forest, because they, they got relegated. Uh, and so by the time that you just mentioned Brian, Cuff, Brian Clough came along, in um, in January of 1975, we had been in the second division for a couple of years. Yeah. What were your impressions, your first impressions of Brian Clough? <clears throat> well, Brian Clough, th these would be preconceived um, impressions because Brian Clough was a major character in the game. Derby. And major character. Big, big character. And um, you're talking about uh, really a an iconic figure in many aspects. He... Um, uh, he ruled the roost at Derby County. He was outspoken, not just being outspoken, but he was, uh, about every third or fourth week, you seem to find him in Michael Parkinson's shows. You know, <laughs> that's how big a celebrity he was, you know. And he was um, uh, very successful, and, and you had, you had um, uh, mimics like Mike Yarwood, great Mike Yarwood, uh, mimicking him. So if he's mimicking Brian Clough, you can know he must be pretty famous mm. in Britain. And uh, so, but he had had a bad time at Leeds United. That was never going to work at him because he called, he called the Leeds United players um, cheats. 
and uh, and the Bremner boys and, and absolutely, all of that. and they're the best team. In, they're the best team in Britain at the time. No question about that. You're talking about Johnny Giles, Billy Bremner, Norman Hunter, you know Jack Charlton, all these players, terrific footballers, uh, Peter Lorimer, and um, and they had won the league, and um, and he's he's calling them cheats. They should throw their medals in the bin. And now he said this a few weeks beforehand, and now he becomes manager of them. So they're not going to accept Brian Clough. I don't care how, how charismatic he is. And so he lasted about 44 days. And then, so we're getting him. We get him. He comes to us, Nottingham Forest, who would be enemies in many aspects of Derby County. Here he comes to Nottingham Forest uh, a couple of months later. And obviously, I mean, his whole, his whole character just pervaded the place, you know. Just ooze confidence and charisma. Right. Used, uh, yes. It's interesting because when he arrived, and I'm talking about the very first day that he arrived, that was really, really interesting. And uh, But we won the first next two games and then didn't win another match for 16 games. Really? Absolutely. So, honestly, amazing. There's only Brian Clough would have been able to have survived it. Can you imagine in today's game now not winning for that for that yeah. number of matches? But Brian Clough would have been unsackable at the time, and certainly, uh, certainly, uh, sorry, Nottingham Forest wouldn't have been in any, any position to to be leaving this charismatic character to the or or bombing him out, as it were. Okay, so his first day arriving, he um, cold January morning, and. Um, he um, just he, he just I don't know, cruised into the dressing room, really cold as well. Threw the jacket onto the and um, and it was only about there's only a couple of players he would have known in the dressing room. I mean, we were two bit players going nowhere, as it were. And um, he knew he knew a lad called Barry Butland because he had had him at Derby County, and he probably knew the captain of our team called Bobby Chapman, who was nicknamed Sammy Chapman. And Sammy, Sammy was the first person he addressed, you know, and, the, and just, you know, uh, talked about the cold weather and how it can affect you. And um, his, his, um, his sentences were really short and sweet, just said that he'd come here now. He said that um, at this minute we'd obviously want to try and improve our position. Uh, but he said, let you do the playing, lads, and I'll do the worrying about the team, you know, and then we'll see how we get on with each other. So our first game was a couple, of, a couple of days later. We played Tottenham Hotspur in the FA Cup replay, won that game. Then we had a league match at, um, against Fulham down at Craven Cottage, and we won that. And we stayed in this little place, this place called Bisham Abbey for the four days. So you start to get to know a bit about him, and he starts to get to know a bit about you. So he put me straight into the team. I do well against, um, against uh, Tottenham. Uh, uh, and he praises me at the end of the game, which was nice. Then the following morning, we're doing a warm-down session. I had really got a really sore foot, I had a bruised foot from the night before, but I didn't want to say anything. So I filled it up with cotton wool, my boot with cotton wool. Anyway, this ball's played to me, and, I, I, and it's so sore, I played a bad ball off. And he said, hey, son, you know, just having praised me the previous night, now he rollicks me for, for playing a bad ball. And I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting time. Uh, sorry, an interesting time with him, and so it proved. But um, the first four days with him, I, I honestly I can remember it's like yesterday. 
it just is, you know, something that's really fresh in your, in, uh, in your memory. And, uh, yeah, again, I told you, he didn't, uh, he didn't win a game for the next 16 matches after he'd won those two. We struggled a wee bit in, in many aspects. We didn't really improve that much. And then along comes Peter Taylor, his, um, his assistant manager and his sidekick. He stayed down at Brighton while, when, when Brian Clough left to go to Leeds United. And when the two of them together, we saw a rejuvenated Brian Clough. And not for one minute did he not have charisma before, but he absolutely exuded that confidence you were talking about. And Taylor was brilliant for him, really brilliant for him. A good spotter of talent, would not have the same, wouldn't have the same personality as, as Brian Clough, but was fantastic for him. And then we saw, we essentially saw a new man in, in Brian Clough. And you felt the two of them together, you just um, hang on to your hat because you know there's going to be success around the corner. Yeah, and it's a success that was achieved Nottingham Forest, either the domestic league or on a European level. For me, mm -hmm. again, this is just my opinion, yeah. eclipses what Leicester did I, I, for I, me. Yeah, it definitely does. It was interesting to, uh, to um, hear uh, Graham Sooners talking about uh, Nottingham Forest, and he, of course, was a member of the fantastic Liverpool side. And Liverpool were the benchmark, I have to say, at the time. Even though we seemed to have the Indian sign over them, we seemed to beat them a lot in those particular years. But he was talking about, uh, I think, that um, he was being interviewed and I think he was following on from an interview that Larry Lloyd said, just said that our achievements eclipsed what Leicester did for many reasons, and I'll explain them in a second. Um, but... Um, and. Um, and um, Graham Souness, you said, yeah, I think that's probably right. What we did, we came from the second division, the, which would be called the championship now. We, we struggled in that, but we just made it up. Then suddenly we go and win the league, first time of asking. We won the League Cup that particular year as well too. We're in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup for a side that has just got promoted. The following year, we won the, uh, we won the, um, uh, we won the European Cup. And the year after that, we won the European Cup again, all from a, a, a little three-year period and a couple, another League Cup on top of that. So Leicester City, Leicester City had, I know it had been a struggle for them a year or two before, but they were, they were in the Premier League mm. and then they go and win it. And I think if, if Leicester City had followed up, and I know that, that, that winning, trying to win the Champions League is remarkably difficult. Had they followed that up, you might have said it. You know, but our three-year period definitely would have eclipsed anything that's anybody's. It's just to get it back to back, though. Absolutely, it's remarkable. It is. It is honestly. It really is. When you look back at the European victories, how do you view the first one? Because you didn't play. I didn't. Well, I. I well, I don't really view it in that sense. I played. We played in the uh, semi-final of the European Cup that year. We played against Cologne, and. Um, I, Cologne, Cologne were uh, German champions. They'd won the German league and they'd won the German cup, and they were, you know, the big, big team at that time, and host of international players playing for them. And we played them, and probably the most, I would have said, the most atmospheric game I have ever played at club level was the first game, the first game at the City Ground, where, where, Cologne are two 0 up in about 12 minutes of the match, away from home, you know, with away goals counting double. And it looks as if they could beat us 6-0 at, at, um, at the city ground in the semi-final of a European Cup. 
you think this just cannot happen. But suddenly we find, we find something along the way, Adam, you know, to fight back in that game, get back into, and, and we were actually leading 3-2 when uh, uh, their substitute came on and scored a goal and went underneath Peter Shilton's body. But a 3-3 draw in a game that we could have easily have lost, you know, by a bag full of goals. So we showed some really fighting spirit and that was fantastic. Then we go to Cologne and we win in Cologne to go through. Now, <clears throat> if the final had been played the following morning, Brian Clough would have said, same team again. Mm. But what happened in the meantime, in the couple of weeks into the European Cup final, myself and Archie Gemmell picked up injuries. Now, whether I would have played or not, I don't know, because Trevor Francis became eligible to play in the final. Strange rules in those days, but he became eligible just for one game to play in a European Cup final. And, um, but I, and I didn't train during the, the, the three-week period. I'd, I'd um, got a dead leg that developed into a blood clot in my, in, in my thigh. I had to go outside the, the, to try and get... Uh, I, I went to this physiotherapist in Nottingham almost like a blind physiotherapist who put a fantastic touch who um, who said you need injections and that there and then we'll start working on it and uh, and I, I I was working away to try and get fit but my first training session my first training session in three weeks was in the Monday evening when we arrived in Germany for a game on a Wednesday night so I can understand Brian Clough thinking I don't want to be going to yeah. European Cup final with a number of injuries and uh, Archie Gemmel didn't play. But because you don't play in the final, you don't feel part of it. I, that's, you just do not feel, it doesn't matter about the semi-final, it doesn't matter about those glorious games beforehand. In a final, you're not part of that. And if you're not in that field of play when that final whistle goes, you are not part of that. You just don't, <clears throat> I don't know whether this is a, um, a general feeling among players, but certainly it was how like I felt. Roy Keane said the same thing, I think, about 99. Absolutely. Well, you don't do it. Uh, and, uh, and really, and I look, I look back with some, well, I suppose with a, um, I look back at some of the footage afterwards, and myself and Archie Gamble, you'd feel as if, you know, there'd been a death in the family, really, but the, the, our faces are, you know, while the players are celebrating winning, you know, I've got a face like thunder, I must admit, but I just never felt part of that, that, that final. And, uh, and so, you do feel frustrated, you do feel anger because Nottingham Forest, with the best will in the world, are not going to be contesting another European Cup final. As it turns out, they do, but I wasn't to think of that there, that particular night in Munich. So it became a bit of a, it became a, a real frustrating night. And the, the, the end of the story was, we go in, we're in, after all the euphoria, after collecting the medals, after going round the pitch a number of times, we come back into the, the, um, the, the, into the dressing room. A really small dressing room, for it, considering it was the Olympic Stadium in Munich. And um, so we're handing out our medals, and uh, Brian Clough realises that, that it's just the players that have got the medals, is not, um, not, not staff. Not like nowadays, you know, where you get medals for it. And uh, so I think he wanted to get uh, a medal, a, a medal cut for for himself and for Peter Taylor and for the coach Jimmy Gordon, and and instead of actually asking one of the substitutes to give up his medal, he thought that the best thing to do would be to give up all the substitutes to give up their medals, so that you're not making just um, uh, you know a scene of one and asking him to. 
to give up their medals to go back again to get some medals cut, you know. Mm. But it's, the, it's European night. It's the last night of the season. And all I asked was, yeah, that's fine. Okay, can I take my medal out and show it to my family? Which is a medal. You've, we know you've fought. It's a European Cup medal, even though you've not played in it. And he refused to do that. He refused. He said, no, no, no. And so in a fit of peak, I actually threw the medal across the table. I just, I know, it wasn't the medal, it was the little box it was in, and I threw it across the table. And there was a bit of a stunned silence for a second or two, but, you know, he didn't say anything. And then I pick it up, and there was a little mark, so I got a pen, and I put a little marker on the, on the box, and I said to Jimmy Gordon, the coach, I said, Jimmy, this is the medal I want back again when we come back for a pre-season. And in fairness, it was the medal I got back, you know? Wow. So, so, because that's the medal that you've picked up. Even as I said to you, you don't feel part of it. It is still your medal. You've played a part in, in, in getting there, and therefore, um, and therefore, I just uh, I, I got <clears throat> excuse me, I got my medal back, thinking, well, that's it. And then, a totally different scenario the following year when you're playing in the European Cup final, and you've won it on merit on the pitch. Was that the best night of your life? It was, at club level, it, it's very, very hard to beat. Very hard to beat. There's a finality to it. It's not a first-round game. It's not a semi-final. It's a final of the European Cup. And those European Cups were for Puskas, De Stefano, George Best, all the Celtic what players. You were watching as a kid. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So to win that medal is just, it's, well, it's glorious, man. Don't tell your kids that it is the best time of your life. I'm no, sure no. their yeah. birth was better, of course, <laughs> yeah. and your wedding, and no. then... In terms then, of professional football, Yes, in yeah. terms of professional football. Yeah, it I, was fantastic. I don't think it can be really be, be beaten. Mm. It's, it's incredible. I want to go back a bit to the Clough-Taylor relationship. Mm. What was it about that relationship that made it so special? Well, first of all, I think that they had... Um, um, Brian, Brian Clough, strangely enough... I, actually probably needed, you know, in the, in the, we, you, you talked earlier about uh, me looking for this praise. I think Brian Clough needed someone charismatic and all as he was, and he was phenomenally. He needed someone actually to bolster him as well. Sometimes people need that. And there was no better man than Peter Taylor. Peter Taylor knew, he knew him the best, the best way to get Brian Clough motivated. And in a sense, probably motivated himself. Brian Clough had a great trust in, in, in Peter Taylor, trust in his opinion of players. Peter Taylor was a great spotter of a player, even though he was a goalkeeper. I say that, I don't say that disparagingly. <laughs> and goalkeepers, I always feel as if the only people that they should really know about are goalkeepers. But he had been a goalkeeper, but he could spot players. And he brought some big players into the football club. Brilliant Peter Taylor, Kenny Burns, um, uh, Peter With, he brought in for £40,000 from Birmingham City. Players like this here. So he, um, and added to the little bit of talent that was at the football club. So um, Taylor was, a, a, as I said, great for him. Taylor was also, he was a funny man. He was funny. Don't cross Peter Taylor either, but he was funny. He was, a, and he could make you laugh. And he definitely made Brian Clough laugh. There's no question about that. And when, you know, sometimes as a manager, obviously I didn't realise this until you become a manager, so, you know, when the players have left the, the, the training ground and sometimes your day's just starting, you might need that sort of companion somewhere along the way to kind of make you laugh and make mm. you feel as if you leave the trials and tribulations of the, uh, of the previous result behind you, 
let's just um, let's go and have a bit of a laugh or something like this, at least together. And that's what I can imagine, having experienced some of these things, with, particularly with John Robertson and Steve Walford, um, my, my coach, when players have left the football ground and you're there and you feel as if well, you've been at, you know, the whole weight of the world's with you, uh, uh, on top of your shoulders, you maybe need someone there to, to help. Peter Taylor would have been terrific like that. He would definitely, I can see them now. I can see him cracking a joke to, to Cloughy and Cloughy just sitting down and absolutely exploding with laughter. You know, I can see it in an absolutely picture. So Taylor was really good for them. Unfortunately, they fell out. Yes. After I'd left the football club, not particularly because of me, it wasn't, <laughs> but I'd, they'd left. And Peter Taylor felt that he had had enough at Nottingham Forest. Brian Clough had always looked after him really well. And Taylor said, well, I'm, 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 I'm retiring now. But Peter Taylor, a couple of months later, reappeared as a manager at Derby County, which would be anathema to Brian Clough, you know? And of course, they never, they never spoke again. Um, Peter Taylor signed John Robertson to Derby County. That would, have been a, that would have been a blow to Brian Clough as well. And, uh, and the two of them, I think they've realised they should have made up. They never did at the time. And I think that uh, Brian Clough had took that regret to, to his death. Yeah. You know? I think it was said it was Peter Taylor's funeral. And he went to the, t he went went to to the funeral, funeral and he realised that they, they, should, they should have spoken. Because together they, were, they really were terrific, I must admit. Terrific. How was your relationship like with both men after you left the club, though? My relationship, right, my relationship with Brian Clough was always, uh, always kind of a, a, a bit sticky, you know. Again, for the reasons that I've given you, and sometimes looking for this praise and maybe not getting it, and maybe I didn't deserve it. <clears throat> but, and Peter Taylor, I felt, was uh, similar. Peter, Peter Taylor tried to, to, tried to sell me to Coventry City once, and uh, so, uh, so I would say that despite the fact the two of them were terrific together and brilliant for Nottingham Forest and Forest wouldn't have achieved that without them, then my relationship with them wouldn't have been, you know, would, would have been stilted, I think, at, at times, you know, and, and, uh, and all the times pretty decent. But listen, I, I'm, I'm giving you the impression here that every single day was a, a, was, um, was a, a, a chore. It certainly wasn't. It absolutely wasn't. I'm a professional footballer. I'm getting paid for what I love doing, you know, and also I'm in I'm in a uh, Nottingham Forest team that are going places. We're winning mm. leagues and European cups. So listen, life was fantastic, but you know, but yeah, I I think I, I think that um, I would have felt a bit better if the, if my relationship with them was, was was a bit better. Forget about that. It doesn't really matter. You asked me what it was like afterwards, and strangely enough, Peter Taylor was probably the man that started to get me thinking about management because I went, um, um, he had retired from the game completely this time and I was in Nottingham, this was maybe about, about five years after I'd left Nottingham Forest and I'd never seen Peter Taylor in that time and, and probably didn't want to either. He's coming out of, he's coming out of, uh, he's coming out of, um, a building in Nottingham. I see him from uh, uh, from about 15, 20 yards away, and I really don't want to see him. You know, I thought oh, I'm not going to. But he spot he spots me, and he makes a beeline for me, and he said, "Hey, hey, how are you?" 
And Peter used to always speak with his with his hands, you know. Yeah. He he makes sentences out of his hands. You might he might not even say a word, but you know, understand exactly what he's saying because of his of his hand movement. And he said to me, "Hey, you you disappoint me." And he said, "I said, uh, why is that?" He said, "I thought you had gone into management." He really did honestly, and I thought, well, that's really strange because if he didn't think that if 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 he had a problem with my playing, then I, he'd never. He just actually said to me. He said, "You disappoint me." He said, "I thought you would have gone into management. I thought you would you were you were um, you were tailor made for management." And he said, "And of course, you had the two best uh, uh, teachers in the world, and myself and Brian, Brian Cloughyman, and and really, and it was you know, it was a, it was a compliment in a sort of a, a non complimentary fashion. But even so, and I I really went home that day, and I started to think about it because I'd, I'd football management I'd not really thought about at all. And um, and so because of Peter Taylor that meeting, I started then apply for jobs, right, left, and centre. Now I I I I, I was getting refused a lot a lot of times, uh, but even so he was he would have been he would have been the one that I thought well if Peter Taylor thought I could make a manager, maybe there's something in that. He passed away before you really hit your highs as mm -hmm. a manager. Yeah. Brian Clough was around for a mm. while. Did he ever reach out to you when you were...? Yeah, I, uh, Brian Clough, um, he actually came to one of our League Cup finals. Oh, did he? He did. He came to one of... Uh, this is when I was at Leicester City. And, uh, in fact, we invited him down to the, uh, to the football ground. John, John Roberts was my assistant, and he loved John. You know, he really loved John. He tolerated me, but he loved John. And, uh, and we had this idea that we might bring him down to the... He had retired himself. And maybe just get him get him out of the house, or as Barbara, his wife, had said, please get get him out of the house for a day or so. And so he came down to the training ground once. But as a consequence of that, we invite him to the League Cup final. And my wife tells me that he was at a table at her table um, in one of the one of those um, rooms at Wembley, and and he just stole the show as you would expect him. He was just he was. Um, I know he had a, he had a um, it obviously a couple of problems with uh, with heavy drinking, but that particular day he was just on fantastic form, and really stole the show as you would expect Brian Clough to do that round the table. He, apparently, my wife tells me he was Miss Mary. Um, it's a great career you had, of course, but your management career, I think, for the younger generation, mm. that's how they would know mm. you as well. When did you feel you started to really make a name? How did you even get the first managerial job? Was it Grantham? Well, okay. Well, I did, following on from that, um, from that um, Bradford, from Bradford City, um, and which I didn't get, and that would have been in uh, that would have been uh, January of 1987. And uh, but I, st I was applying for uh, some jobs, and believe it or not, then I got a knock on the door. Um, uh, from one of the directors of uh, Grantham Town, Grantham. Now, Grantham being famous, really, for uh, being the birthplace of Margaret Thatcher, you know. And, um, and Grantham would be, a, a, in terms of distance, about 25 miles from Nottingham. And this, uh, this fellow came to knock on my door. How you found on my address, I don't know. But he said, uh, I wonder, would you be interested in coming to manage Grantham? I said, well, what... What division are they in? Because you know, and, it's not, it's, and he said we are in the Beezer Home Midland Division. I said, how many leagues would that be below? The, it was about five or six, you know. 
And so I thought it wasn't it wasn't really enticing in that sense. But I thought to myself, right, you, and he was um, he was um, persuasive in my So I said, I'd like you to come and meet the board members. So I did, and and it would be two nights a week and uh, and the Saturday game. And you know what? That was like the the the, the first foray into into management, and I kind of really enjoyed it because I I worked with the players. I, you know, I felt that this was uh, that if if I'm going to, if I'm going to try and become a manager, you know, why not? Let's let let. I, I don't have this. I don't have this view that you start down below and you learn and you learn from all your mistakes. I don't. I don't subscribe to that, Adam. For the one reason being is that if you fail down there, you might not get a chance to manage elsewhere. And uh, but even so, I thoroughly enjoyed Grantham. I, um, I, um, the two nights a week and a Saturday seemed to seem to suit, and of course, and I treated Grantham as if it was if, as if it was the Premier League. Mm. You know, these games become really important, and and once you once you put that message out to the players, they feel that they think that they're important because you have placed them into an important position, and of course, our league did become really really important to us. These were the results we were looking at. And I'd be checking through to see how the other teams were doing that particular Saturday, and it would probably—it might be about ten o'clock and Saturday night before I realised what the Premier League results might be. You know, so I—I I was starting to—I um, was starting to really enjoy it, whether it was called the Premier League at that time or not. That was this would be 1997. Uh, well, so the Premier League became 92, was it or something? Uh, like, yes, 92. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but anyway, certainly whatever it was being called at the time. So. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I took, uh, I, I did that for, for two seasons um, and, um, and then moved to a similar league um, to uh, another team called Shepshed, similar league, only it was the Northern League. So in other words, um, Grantham would be playing a lot of teams in the Midlands of, of, of England, whereas Shepshed would be playing Northern teams going far, as far as Manchester and, and beyond that. And because, because Shepshed uh, Football Club was only about 10, 10 miles away from me, I had, I had more time to be able to go and, and get things organised for training. And so I did that for a little while, not, not for that long. But I must admit I was doing intermittent work with BBC for, uh, to cover some football matches. And I thought to myself, well, you know what? I, this, might be, this might be, you know, for covering games for BBC Radio, Things like this here, I might be able to get into some boardroom and 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 maybe force my, my myself, a, you know, upon some unsuspecting uh, directors or something like this here. But um, I'm not so sure that I would really have done that. But anyway, as a chance meeting, uh, after I'd left Shepshed, a chance meeting with Alan Parry, who was a director of Wickham Wonders, but a big a big Liverpool supporter. And he was there off duty this particular day to watch Liverpool versus Norwich in an, an FA Cup game. And I'm doing the commentary work for, for radio, chance meeting. And um, uh, the job was available, that, uh, the Wicked Wonders job was available. He said it might be a bit late because they've, um, they're appointing people now or might even be appointing people. But he said, I'll put me your name in. As it turns out, Kenny Swain, who was the uh, player who'd won a uh, European Cup medal with Aston Villa, and a very fine player, he was assistant manager at, at, uh, at Crew Alexander. He had applied for the job, got the job, and then the following morning didn't take it. 
So then they ask me down for an interview and I get the Wickham Wanderers job. And that's when that's the when managerial they, career absolutely. Of, of, your, of your life really started yeah. to take off. Yeah. And how did it feel the first day? Mm. With all due respect to Grantham mm. and mm. Jeff said before, this is your... Absolutely right. Well, Wickham Wanderers were... <clears throat> we're Vauxhall Conference team, so one league below the, uh, com the conference. Obviously, my ambition was to get uh, Wickham Wanderers into the Football League. That would be it. That would be really what you'd want to do. And then there was a, <clears throat> excuse me, there was uh, the, um, uh, the non-league equivalent of the FA Cup called the FA Trophy. And I would like to have won that as well too. I would like to try and win that. As it turns out, we won it twice and we got promotion. And... And, and then Wickham Wanderers became, became from a non-league team to a professional team. So the players became, and I kept the nucleus of the team as well too. So those players who would have another job in their lives suddenly gave up those jobs for less money to become a professional footballer. You know? So what I'm saying is that the two jobs they were doing, so they'd be paid as semi-professionals with, um, with Wickham Wanderers and their normal job during the day, and they would give that up to become professional players. And I couldn't pay them the type of money they were getting there. I could only pay them a, a small amount to become professional players. And with they were brilliant. And honestly, everyone, almost to a man, well, a couple couldn't do it because they just couldn't afford to take the drop in wages. But these players all wanted to become professional players. So I even mentioned in the book that I've done that I owe those Wickham Wanderers players a lot because they put heart and soul into it, you know, and... While I, I was successful there and, and it was really good, I must admit that the players, the, the players, their attitude was just absolutely fantastic. You know, they would have gone through the proverbial brick wall for you. Mm. you know? So um, we had a really great time and, uh, and I enjoyed it immensely, had a bit of success. We got promotion and then the following year, or first year as, be, uh, as being a professional team in the league, we get promotion again through the playoffs. We beat Preston. Um, beat Preston and David Moyes was, was captain. Just, of, he was captain of Preston. I was just about to say David Moyes' name. Yeah. when you said Preston because yeah. when I think of Preston, I think of Beckham and Moyes. Mm -hmm. They were both there. Yeah. So, um, and funnily enough, they had also a little player playing that day for Preston as well, called Gareth Ainsworth, oh. who is now Wickham Wanderers manager and has been for the oh. last ten years. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so that 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 was really terrific, and then. Um, the opportunity came to, to manage Norwich, uh, Norwich City, um, followed. I went down there, I, myself and the, the chairman didn't get on too well, and uh, after about five or six months I left and went to Leicester City. Before we get to Leicester, when it comes to actually any of your clubs, mm -hmm. Leicester, whatever it might be, because I've worked with a few of your former players, they all speak so highly of you, Chris Sutton, mm -hmm. uh, Stylian Petrov was the most recent one we had out here. Right. And I know that there's gatherings, I know Celtic mm -hmm. have had a few gatherings, mm -hmm. um, including yourself there. Mm. Do you have that with the other clubs as well, apart from Celtic? I, we no, there, there. Yeah, there, there was. Um, there's an annual event at Wickham Wonders, and I get invited down to this particular event, and uh, and that is, it's really nice. They, there's, um, you know, there's a soul to Wickham Wonders. You know, they, they. I, I want them still to retain that sort of Corinthian spirit that they've had throughout their amateur days, and and um, but really stay in the professional world, and, and it's uh, and it's a kind of a happy mix, I must admit, and um, so I've made a lot of friends there when I was at Wickham. Celtic have I've gone occasionally up to Celtic, 
Um, not that often, I must admit, but they've had some sort of gatherings. Uh, there has uh, Leicester City have never had a gathering in that never. time. No, never have had. Uh, they might think some anniversary now of uh, of maybe a League Cup victory or something like that that might materialise, but they've never really had it. And uh, no, and uh, Aston Villa have not had anything like that at all. Yeah. Do you ever, when you do meet up, how are the players with you? Do you think they'll they're always a little bit fearful of you. They'll always view you as the manager. Yeah, of I, I, well, I would hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, um, for instance, Chris Sutton at some meeting called me Martin. <laughs> and uh, called me Martin. And uh, and I think Henrik Larsson said to him at the time, he said, no, he's not Martin, he's your boss, you know, at this time. So coming like someone from uh, like uh, Henrik Larsson, that would be... That would be pretty big. No, I would. I would hope that there'd still be that. I don't. I don't mean fear in the fact that you just wouldn't. You couldn't walk into the room. But I would hope that. that and 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 the respect would be mutual. You know, these players, uh, Celtic players, were were absolutely brilliant. You know, yeah. brilliant players. And don't tell Sutton too often, but he was fantastic. You know, on occasion. Um, speaking of Chris Sutton, because I, mm. I love working with him, but he can mm. be a bit dour at times. Yeah. <laughs> Who, who's a more dour individual, <clears throat> Peter Shilton, your former teammate, or Chris Sutton, your former player? It's, it's, well, I, I, I think that uh, you're talking about Chris. Chris, Chris does a, a bit of acting now. You know, I he think does. he does. Yeah, he does. Uh, Chris is actually he is uh, he's witty. Uh, um, he in a dressing room, for instance, he would be. He'd downplay everything, really downplay it. He would be walking into the dressing room and, uh, and Celtic would be expected to, to run all over a team that particular day, particularly at Celtic Park. And he would be saying, oh, we're going to get beaten today. We're going to get beaten, you know. And uh, I wouldn't hear these things, you know. But the players would tell me afterwards, he said, you know, he, he could, if you were to actually believe him, and none of the players did, believe him you know you could actually make you feel bad about yourself in many aspects but he that type of humor really more than anything else but what I remember Chris once saying uh, when he got himself into a little bit of bother with um, a couple of the newspapers up in uh, in Scotland he's saying I'll tell you what he said you'll never find me doing any punditry work well yeah well that's all he does now you know <laughs> yes, in many aspects but um, listen I I enjoy him he's actually very very good company and um, and he uh, he can he'll try and he'll try and put you away with a couple of comments. You know he can be he can be a bit snotty like that in that aspect. But overall, you you, you treat Chris in the in the manner in which you 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 would want to treat him. You know, and uh, I used to say to him, "There's um, I have a really soft spot for you, Chris." And he said, "Oh, that's lovely, Martin." I said, "No, don't call me Martin." And secondly, the soft spots at the at the bottom of the garden as well. <laughs> So uh, anyway, I've but he's 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 uh, honestly he's 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 fine, and um, as I say, I'll not shout it out. But uh, him him coming to the football club was major landscape changer for us because we just lost Mark Viduka. Viduka was going to Leeds United. We needed someone to partner Henrik Larsson, and Sutton was brilliant. I love working with him. I love the little battles that mm. Chris Sutton and I have on TV. But I I've, I've just had a flashback. You on the radio with him. Mm. And he, he just couldn't, he just couldn't get a word in properly because no. you eviscerated yeah. him on radio. Uh, yeah, and um, I was thinking, wow, I'm feeling sorry yeah. for Chris Sutton. <laughs> I honestly felt sorry for him because he didn't stand a chance. You can call him witty, yeah. but you are as sharp mm. as a thumbtack, mm. Mark. Yeah, well, you, you really are. I, but with with uh, 
you, you can actually you can actually have this with with Chris because Chris thinks that, that, that he has to dominate everything you know he has to dominate he has to have the last word but you know when you've been the manager and you've had you've actually had to put him down a couple of times during the dressing room then I then I kind of find it pretty easy to do that mm. there I, or a continuation of that anyway Adam um, the original question was about Peter Shilton as mm. well, because I've worked with many people that have worked with Peter Shilton, mainly on the England duty, yeah. I have to admit. said so he can be a very grumpy man. Mm. <laughs> as a teammate, because you're not his manager, how yeah. was it with, with Peter Shilton? Well, t P Peter was, um, well, first of all, he was a fantastic goalkeeper. And that's Unbelievable. The most yeah, absolutely. A major signing for us. Major, major signing. And, um, and he... When, when opposition would have gone past, that, say, Larry Lloyd or, or Kenny Burns, you still felt that, you know, while Peter Shilton's in goal, you, uh, you still had a chance he might keep this ball out of the net. And he did that on more than one occasion. He was worth his weight in goal for us. So I've been very, very lucky, and I put this down as an aside at this minute, very lucky because I, I, I played in front of Peter Shilton at club level and I played in front of uh, Pat Jennings at international level. So you know, I, you know. So I've, I've been ex extremely lucky to have had those two goalkeepers as part of my life. But um, you say a bit grumpy. Yeah, Peter can. He can be a bit grumpy. He can be uh, if things are not going so well for him. He can be. He can be. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. We'll stay with grumpy at the minute. Okay. And uh, but no. Listen. I um, in company. You know, when he's in a good mood, he's absolutely fine. Uh, I don't see him that often. I haven't seen him that often now, really, since um, since um, since I left Nottingham Forest. But in, we have the occasional reunion, and we had a reunion uh, with the team away back, uh, probably about a year ago, and um, and that's the, I think it's the last time I saw Peter. Peter came to it. When I was a kid. I play as a goalkeeper. I'm terrible, mm. but I've always been fascinated by goalkeepers. Mm. I had a book, uh, Goalkeepers Must Be Crazy. Yeah. It's sort of like my Bible. It was written by Bob Wilson. Okay, yeah. Um, mm. Years ago, this is it's an old book, mm. and he's dedicated chapters to goalkeepers. There's one goalkeeper, I still remember, a, a Rangers goalkeeper who passed away while playing mm -hmm. uh, back in the 1920s or 1930s. Mm -hmm. Broke his neck while playing. And Was that not Celtic goalkeeper? Sorry, Celtic. Yeah. Celtic, Celtic. Yeah, Celtic. Thompson. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Uh, Celtic. Yeah. Uh, he broke his neck. And yeah. Bert Troutman yeah. gets yeah. mentioned in the book. Yeah. And another one was Peter Shilton. And I think in, this, in the story was he would hang himself mm -hmm. from the, uh, the to door himself. frame. To stretch mm -hmm. himself. Yeah. What he did was he stretched his arms, mm -hmm. but not his, his yes. torso. Uh -huh. yeah. And now, every time I see Peter Shilton, I see his, his fingers are down to his knees. <laughs> it's just yeah. remarkable yeah. to look at, yes. really. When Shilton trained, when he trained, he, he trained like you wouldn't believe. You know? Let's say, let's say um, remember, in those days, no goalkeeping coaches. You didn't. So, and... But Peter Shilton on a, on a day would, would, would gather a number of apprentices down and have them work with him during the course of the day. So he would be alone. He wouldn't have anybody supervising him in that sense. No, I mean, when he was, um, when, when he was um, uh, training with us, sometimes he would play outfield. And Peter, Peter was not an outfield player, <laughs> let me tell you, you know, just didn't have the feet for it. And there might be a bit of a problem now with the back pass, you know, uh, going back to the goalkeeper. But Peter Shilton's job was, as Brian Clough would say, 
to stop the ball from going into the net. And you usually stop it with your hands rather than your feet. So, uh, but he would bring he would bring apprentices down, uh, and and he would have them doing the work for them. And honestly, he like he worked for let's say maybe for an hour and a half. You would not see anything like it. You know, really, really working, really working. So Peter Shield now would have with. Um, I think he I think he took up the the mantle of being a goalkeeping coach then for mm. for a while but over overall during his career for most of his career he wouldn't have had any goalkeeping coaches to advise him or help him and uh, and Shilton was when he trained he really trained hard his story as well you know that at club level they they decided to sell banks because they had young absolutely absolutely this is at Leicester city absolutely the fact that Ray Clements didn't have as many camps as you could argue he should have got because mm -hmm. Peter Shilton was there, yeah. um, which is amazing when you think about it now. Well, if you think if you think that those two those two goalkeepers uh, during a period of time, um, uh, one would play one international, someone would play the next one, and if you still think that Peter Shilton, what was it, got about 120 odd caps or mm -hmm. whatever it was, you think if if Ray Clemens had not been around at that time, the number of caps that Peter Shilton would have got for England. Crazy, yeah. And there he was. I mean, in 1990, as you're starting to verge into management, he was playing at a World Cup. Still. Absolutely, correct. And he was playing football before you started as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, you know, it's yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it's, it? It's, uh, it is. And um, yeah, Peter Shilton. He's one person I do want to meet one day. Hopefully, hopefully mm. I will meet him. Uh, oh, I do. Also, you haven't. So when you were saying, I, I, I thought that you said because based he was on grumpy. what? Based on what people have told me who have oh, been in his company. I got you, got you. Uh, but Chris, Sorry. Chris, on the yeah. other hand, I've yeah. done quite a bit of work yeah. with, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in person and mm. also via yeah. Zoom. Mm. But Peter Shilton is someone I, I've yet to meet. I've got you, sorry. And, uh, yeah, just, I'll tell you another story. There was another goalkeeper when I was growing up who I became fascinated with. I even have his book, a, a training book at home, mm. Mm -hmm. which I found on eBay a few years ago, and mm. I had it when I was a teenager, okay. before I was even a teenager. Neville Southall. Yeah, yeah. And I thought you were going to say that. It, it, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, when yeah. I was about 12, yeah. he had left Everton. He was playing for Stoke, and I was mm -hmm. living in Oxford <laughs> at school, boarding school. And I got taken to watch Oxford play mm -hmm. just so I could see... Uh, a, a teacher took me, because mm -hmm. this was boarding school. A teacher took me to see Stoke play, mm -hmm. Oxford, just so I could, I could see I've seen Neville Southall play. Is that right? And he was yeah. still... Yeah, oh, he's so brilliant. brilliant. You, you ask the Everton players about Southall, they, they think he was sensational. Obviously, his heyday was when I was too young, mm -hmm. or I didn't exist yet, but um, we had Lee Sharp sitting in his chair, yeah. and Lee Sharp was at Bradford, mm -hmm. and uh, Neville Southall was a coach, mm -hmm. a goalkeeping coach. Then one day, all the keepers were injured, so Neville Southall signed a, a one-day contract or mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. played one match, yeah. apparently was the best player on the pitch. Is that right? Yeah. God. Even though he had retired, of uh -huh. course, he's yeah. a coach now. Yeah. But um, mm. I think that speaks volumes. Maybe it's yeah. a, maybe it's goalkeepers. Obviously, they don't yeah. have to run as much. So you can still impress. No, still, yeah, but he, yeah, he was a super goalkeeper. No question about that. And you would have, he would have been a contemporary. Of yours, yeah, of course. Cool. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, enough about goalkeepers. Okay. Right. We're, we're a strange breed. Let's focus <laughs> back on, on Leicester. And I remember mm. the first time I. I went to now the King Power, and you can see the League Cup triumph, the trophy hoisted mm -hmm. up. And in this studio as well, Matt Elliott mm -hmm. came by, and, and he was telling stories about what it was like being at Leicester and yeah. amazing experience. Yeah, Elliott, Elliott was terrific for us, really, really terrific. Um, a quick story about Matty Elliott. I uh, um, was managing Wickham Wanderers at the time, and um, 
we were down to play Doncaster Rovers <clears throat> uh, at the weekend, but there was an opportunity to watch Doncaster play because they were going to be playing Scunthorpe and um, uh, about three or four days before they play us. So it's a night game. And I thought this is a great opportunity to go up and watch the, watch the match. So I'm essentially watching Doncaster Rovers, but there are a lot of scouts, a lot of scouts at the game and a lot of managers as well too. I think Kenny Dalglish was there, I think Trevor Francis, manager at the time. And I thought to myself, I wonder who they're watching, you know? As it turns out, um, I find out that they're watching the big centre half for, for Scunthorpe and Matty Elliott. And honestly, he was hopeless that night. Really, really hopeless. Everything he tried to do, he couldn't pull it down, he couldn't do this, he couldn't head the ball, he couldn't do anything. And so John Robertson and I left the game, uh, having watched Doncaster for most of the time, but obviously then keeping an eye because we'd, we had heard that uh, all the big scouts were coming to watch uh, Elliot play. And, um, and so we thought, God almighty, what a waste of time that was to be watching that big centre half. Well, the, I have to say that um, uh, Dennis Smith, Oxford buy, buy, or buys him um, the following day or two days later for £175,000. I thought, well, you know, what did he see in this lad? Anyway, he's now Oxford. Wickham are in the same league, so he will be playing against us eventually. And, uh, and I will get to see Oxford because Wickham is around the corner and I can get to see Oxford play an awful lot of times. Well, I did do over the next season or two, and by the time... By the time that I, I paid 1.5, sorry, 1.6 million pounds from uh, from Oxford to to sign him to Leicester City, and uh, and he was major major player for us. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant centre half, could head it, could pull it down. He could, you know, um, you know. I we watched Maguire uh, a couple of times pick the ball up and run with it. And Elliot could control it. He could do all of that. He could do all of that. Um, he could play centre forward in, a, in an emergency. He did do at times when I, I, I played him up front. In fact, I even started him in a game up front because you knew what he could do. He was a terrific player. Ended up playing for Scotland once or twice as well too. But no, honestly, major signing for us. And, uh, and eventually, um, you know, they just well passed into Leicester City folklore. And I think one, one aspect of his uh, ability, which we haven't mentioned, is his to wear the armband, mm -hmm. yeah. which is so important. I think you you need a good captain. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. He could, uh, yeah, yeah. He was just uh, he was uh, just a, a strong character, believe it or not, you know. And one of those that uh, that would have a conversation with you, he would he would voice an opinion, but he wouldn't throw it down your throat, you know. He would say, well, you know, I think this here, but if you said, uh, Matty, I honestly think we'll go this other way. He'd say, okay, all right, no problem, we'll do that. But, you know, so, but uh, he was terrific. Yeah. Really, really ter terrific player for us. When I think of your Leicester side, I think of so many cult heroes. Your mm. Muzzy is it? Yeah, Neil Lennon. Neil Lennon. Uh, Lennon. We've done a bit of work with him, but only via Zoom. Uh -huh. um, a nice conversation with him. Yeah, he's 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 an intelligent boy. I just remembered that we had. I think we had Chris Sutton on as well mm -hmm. with him, mm. and I think they had a, they had had a disagreement about yeah. something yeah. quite recently as well. I didn't. I wasn't aware, mm. but it, it was okay on TV. I think. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think I think that what has happened is that if 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 that was as recent as you're saying, Adam, I think it's to do with the fact that um, that Neil took a bit of criticism uh, from some of the from some of his ex colleagues. Yes. 
I think that that's not great. Remember, we're, th these lads have shared a dressing room together. They shared big, big moments, shared a couple of... Uh, a, a defeat against uh, uh, Porto in the 2003 UEFA Cup final, shared some fantastic moments of winning league championships and things like this here. And I'm not so sure. I know as a pundit, it's part of your job to be to you know to voice an opinion. But I think I think in in, in cases where it's you know it's a colleague of yours who has who has fought tooth and nail for you in a corner, I'm not so sure that you know. The sort of criticism that that Neil took from some some ex colleagues, I, I don't I don't think it was warranted in the sense that Neil Lennon's Neil Lennon had done brilliantly at uh, at Celtic both as a player and as a manager, and um, and particularly people who have not managed you know mm. no no Chris hasn't managed, and I, 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 that doesn't mean you can't see the game from a managerial viewpoint and Chris can do you know. But I, I think you sometimes... Well, he, he managed for a brief period of time at, at Lincoln City. But I must admit that, you know, you just sometimes have to put yourself into the, into the manager's position and feel what he might be, go, might be going through. It's just my opinion. Of course, yeah. Of course. Um, your, your opinion has weight, I can tell you that mm. much, given everything mm. that you've done. Uh, when it comes to your management style, what's it like? Are you, are you fiery? Or of course, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. You'd hardly tell it from from uh, these interviews, but uh, yeah, I, th I think that um, I think you've got to be. I think you've got to be. First of all, you have to have ferocious enthusiasm for it, and that has to shine through all the time. Once the players realise that 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 this particular game that they're going to play in is the most important game in the universe, you know that nothing else matters. Then then I think you've you, you're, you're on the right footing. But you have to you have to motivate players. I think that's a major part of it. I think the team talks before games are really important, really important, you know. And um, because these are the last moments you're having with your team, you're going out to 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 motivate them uh, to go and play this game. Uh, this game's the most important thing in the universe as well. And that um, and that uh, yeah. But I also think you know you you can learn from managers. Um, even for managers that you know weren't weren't that successful, but they might have had something about them that you thought, well, you know, given different circumstances, they might have done better. But overall, I think that I would be heavily into praise, but I would be I, I would be critical of players as well too, and I would try and tell them as honestly as you possibly can. I think that um, I think that I set out I set out with um, this intention of management that. I, I will treat everybody the same. Doesn't doesn't work. You you know you you get to know characters and you have to you have to look at them and treat them in a different manner. And usually the ones you treat well are the ones who are doing very well for you. You know, I you know that um, I I remember once when I left Aston Villa. I think it was one of those like Harry Redknapp uh, transfer deadline moments. You know where he's winding down the window. And he spoke to Curtis Davis, who was at Aston Villa, and said, "Well, the manager's left. So what do you think?" Oh, well, Curtis said, "Well, uh, well, he always had his he had his favourites, and if I had been there at that moment, I would have intercepted him and said to him, well, Curtis, usually because they were the best players, you know. So, they, you know, you. Um, but I think if you treat, uh, if you praise, um, when the praise is due." And and really make people feel feel good about it. Then I think your criticism, your criticism can still 
can be taken in the context in which it's meant, you know. I'm hoping that there are moments, of course, when you've, you've felt as if you've gone over the top and, uh, uh, and you have to pull yourself back for, from, um, from ruining the situation, uh, you know. But all of that there is a, a sort of a learning curve. So overall, management style, it, 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 it's difficult to say. I think the players now in, in today's game, for instance, might not be able to take the sort of criticism mm. that was meted out to, to the likes of me way back years ago. Um, and that's just, that's just the nature of things. But, but um, yeah, I think that... But you learn. You learn and you learn you, and, and you adjust. You have to adjust. Sir Alex Ferguson was saying that in the latter years of his, his time, he was having to adjust. You know, he was having to, he was having to be, I, I think, um, um, I, what shall I say, less emotional about it, you know. Uh, hair dryer treatment maybe pushed to the side, things like that. But then again, all of, a lot of that can come from your own confidence within yourself when you've won, you mm. know, when you've won a lot of trophies. And I used to feel this year that Leicester City, then it just, you know, getting promotion in that, in that first year, getting up gives you confidence. And then to follow up by winning the League Cup, of course, it makes you feel as if that what you're saying to the players in the dressing room has some sort of resonance because the results are there to prove it. So eventually, Adam, it's all boils down to winning football matches. Yeah, it does. I mean, I was, while I was researching for this interview, I was looking at clips and I saw Robbie Savage talking and he was, he was talking... He was relaying a story about you talking to John Motson and uh, you got a draw against Liverpool. I think Mazzia's it that scored twice. Mm -hmm. And then they said, oh, the boy, that boy, Savage. He's, he's just lacking one thing, ability. <laughs> I didn't believe that's what you said. I was like, wow, yeah. ouch. But it seemed to motivate yeah. someone yeah. like Robbie Savage. Well, Robbie, well, um, Robbie is one of my favourite players, believe it or not, because his enthusiasm was there in, um, and, um, and his running power... Um, he wanted to be uh, he wanted to be a proper player, and uh, so he put heart and soul into it, in, into every single game. But if I said that there was a kind of a joke, of perhaps, course, and, yeah. And uh, but um, he also tells me that once that I did come in at half time in a game and told someone on no account to pass the ball to Robbie Savage because Robbie couldn't couldn't he couldn't deal with it. Now, that's, that is definitely going over the top. And if I did say it, which I do not remember, of course, then I, I obviously have to, I have to send an apology to him, if that's the case. But you know what? You know, uh, and Robbie was a, definitely a very sensitive soul and maybe couldn't take that sort of criticism, but it didn't do him a great deal of harm. You know, he fought through it. He fought through it. And when I did praise him, and there were, there were many occasions when I, when I praised him, he definitely he he, he he felt he felt terrific about it. I must admit, you know, and I know one one particular game where he and Muzzy is it. We had a couple of injuries to players, and we were playing we were playing an FA Cup game against Hereford. Hereford, we'd be expected to beat, particularly in, and it's the replay game of the uh, uh, of the an FA Cup match at Filbert Street. And if Robbie Savage and uh, if Robbie Savage and Muzzy had not been playing that day, we would have lost the game. The, and they honestly, they 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 pulled us through, pulled us through. Hereford were all over us in the game, 
all over it. And these two players pulled us through. So you can imagine what the other nine players were like then if that was the case. Yeah. Seriously. And uh, Izzet and Savage were unbelievable. And, it's, and you know, I'm talking about Hereford. It wasn't Real Madrid, but it's Hereford. But they were unbelievable that day. They did everybody's running. They covered ground. They did everything for the side. And those two had not played that night. We would have been knocked out of the FA Cup. That's how things happen sometimes, Absolutely. I guess. It's amazing. Absolutely. You mentioned Sir Alex Ferguson's name just now. What, what was his company like away from the match? As in post-match? <clears throat> well, generally speaking, well, in post-matches, uh, you know, if, if it's Manchester United uh, versus Leicester City, the chances are he probably won. You know, he would have won the game, although we did go to, to Old Trafford and, and uh, the... Um, and we won one year. Tony Cotty scored a goal. We won at Old Trafford. He played in Malaysia. Uh, Sorry, it, that's right. Tony Cotty. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Tony won a Tony won a League Cup medal with us as well too. So at the at the autumn of his career, but he was a really fine footballer. Tony, good goal scorer. You knew where the goals were. Mm. Really did. So you talked about Alex Ferguson. Alex would be uh, he would be very he would be uh, he would be very good company after a game. He would be. Um, uh, he'd be generally in good spirits because of if, if Manchester United had won, but even even if they'd not, even if not, and, and um, we got a result at Aston, with Aston Villa and Leicester, and um, and uh, he would be uh, uh, he would still be uh, half decent fun, fun, fun's fun's the wrong word, you know. He would be he would be he would certainly make you feel at home, you know, in in that in that sense. And sometimes, Adam, when you're in, when you're in after a game, it can be a lot of small talk. I've, I, because it's a because it's a sort of a British habit that uh, that managers would meet up afterwards. But it's it's something unreal about it in the sense that if you've won the game, you have you know uh, you'd have to be maybe making some platitudes to that. And if you've lost the game, all you want to do is, if you're at home and you've lost the game, you just want the other manager to leave as quickly as possible. Or and if you're away from home, you just want to leave premises. And that is, uh, that, that is that's, all managers feel that, exactly the same, you know. But um, Sir Alex, it was, it was a tradition with him. And from that viewpoint, and any, any pointers he would, have, he would make to you, even, even in terms of advice, you'd, you'd want to be listening to that. But well, there was one particular occasion where um, I manager of Sunderland, and it's the big, big occasion when Aguero has scored the goal, and Sunderland are playing Manchester United, and Sunderland have just uh, Manchester United have beaten us one nil, so they're waiting for the result coming through at at, at uh, the Etihad Stadium, and for a moment they're 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 there, they're going to be champions. And then suddenly, uh, these two goals are scored in the last couple of minutes of the game. So Sir Alex is coming into our, our, our room after this here. Now, after a whole season, a nine-month season, within 90 seconds, he has lost. He's lost the championship. So you can imagine. But he was still... But small talks in the, in, in the room. But you felt as if he's, he's planning for next season. He's ready. He's in his mind. And he's not, he's not going to show us how, how disappointed and how, how, how heartbroken you'll be. But that might come from the number of championships that he's won anyway. Yeah. 
you know, and he has done that. And if this had been his first one, I'm sure he, he could have been much more morose. But you still, still felt in the back of his mind, despite the conversations that are going on with the backroom staff and things that you hear, that you felt he was planning for the next season. You know? Yes, planning Van Persie to come in, Abs win the title, well and done. then say... Absolutely right. I'm retired after that. Uh, I won't say who here, but... How do I put this without revealing anything too much? I don't think it's too bad a thing. We've had one guest here who's told me about another manager. They always look forward to the post-match uh, meet-up with the manager mm -hmm. because the food was excellent. There's one manager in particular who always had good food. Is that right? Uh, I'll tell you later who it is, okay. but I won't say it on camera. Uh, okay. Is there anybody that stands out in your mind in terms of a post-match meal that you always look forward to? No, not, not, no, no, I didn't. I, I really didn't, Adam, because generally speaking, the, the, the food was just, it, it was, you know, little bites or something, I guess, here. So, no, no, I, I, I can't offhand think of it. I bet you I'll, I'll, I'll come out of this year and I'll think... Yeah. I'll tell you who the, the, the per this former manager said it was. Yeah. Uh, Tony Pulis at Stoke. Apparently, he always had a... A lot of roast or something after is, a match. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. I think it was okay. Tony Peters. This is off the top of my yes, head, so right. I'm okay. trying to remember. That, that I don't know. I, okay. I generally, uh, genuinely don't know. Um, and it's not something that I would have thought, oh gosh, I'm really looking forward to this. If I'm looking forward to the, to the post-match meal, then I'm not doing much of a job. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. the person well, who said it came said. from a successful side, let's yeah. just say that Honestly, probably won. won. Yeah. So the, yeah. the, mood, yeah. uh, okay. the food was just an extra bonus. Yeah. No, no. It's just these things in football we don't really see. When yeah. you're watching TV, you'll see the 90 minutes, I'll see you on the touchline mm. or whichever manager it is, but mm. I'm not sure what's happening after, mm -hmm. you know, in the changing room and, and, and other parts of the game which fans aren't really aware of, which yes. really do fascinate me. Yeah. Um, I'm running out of time. But I want to know, what's the biggest difference between being an international manager and being a club manager? Very obvious one is time with the players. Mm. You, don't, you don't get the time. Uh, for instance, let's say with the Republic of Ireland, uh, we would um, probably... Let's say, let's say our game might even be on a Thursday. A Thursday. So we're having to wait for, uh, for players to play their club games on a, on a Saturday and on a Sunday. So some players don't even arrive for, for, uh, on, until Monday. And so you're having these days with them where it's, you know that they've just played a game. It's not as if to say that you're going to, you're going to be running them into the ground because they've only two days to, to, to try and recover from this. And therefore, you're, you're a, a number of things that become important. You might even have to walk through the set pieces, you know, just walk through them, you know, and, 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 uh, but still do them because, yeah. you know, these are become very, very important. But the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. And you will have players not even training. <laughs> Because, I, I, I mean, it's medicine gone mad now at this minute, I think, you know, players talking about match day minus one, match day minus two, club, club teams, uh, particularly if somebody's coming over with a wee bit of a niggle, clubs are on the phone to you saying to, oh, you can't, you can't have them training today. And some days, seriously, if, if you're international matches, usually you will have two games. Maybe if, you go, if one's on a Thursday, the next one's on a Sunday, if you're Friday, then it'll be, it'll be Monday, Saturday, it'll be Tuesday, whatever the case may be. So you're two games. But your first match is so, so important. So you might, and you might even be travelling. You might even be travelling. We've played a game where we've had to go to Georgia 
for instance. It's a fair distance away, mm. you know, and you're having maybe a day and a half with a team. So therefore, things that become really important again, motivation, you know, getting players with the Republic of Ireland, if you're playing teams that are, you know, that are well placed well above you, you're having to motivate players to get them up to play, to play, I can't say above themselves, I remember while they fond of that sort of statement, but to, to, to get them to believe that they can match, you know, Germany at any given, any, any time, or, or Bosnia, or teams like this here. And so for, so when we qualified for the Euros in, in uh, for 2016 in France, it was, a, honestly, it, it really was, it was a terrific feeling, mm. I must admit, really to, and then for us to be out there in France, and, uh, and, uh, first game against Sweden, um, second game well beaten by by uh, by Belgium, and then to beat Italy to 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 qualify for the final 16, it is it's, it's terrific. There's there it's a the feeling is it's because the players are really playing for their country, you know, and uh, and of course you get a an enormous buzz out of that, and particularly with the Republic of Ireland because when I took the job in the first place. I always remembered the great scenes with Jack Charlton yes. way back some years before that, coming back after some victories where the crowds had met not just at the airport but in the city itself. And so when we played Sweden in the opening game in Paris, where um, the two teams must have had about 25,000 fans um, uh, sharing that day, and when our fans were out shouting and, and, uh, and, and singing the songs, then Days like Jack Charlton, I can understand he, he, he must have been he, he, he must have been in cloud nine when these things were happening. So so for us to sort of replicate to a certain extent the days that Jack Charlton had was just fantastic. But you're asking about the differences and the essential differences is the time with that mm. you, you you have with the players, which is very limited. Two things. Firstly, I recommend a book called Two Brothers. Mm -hmm. It came out within the last six months, I think, by Jonathan Wilson, okay. who's, a, who's a brilliant author. He's, he writes for The Guardian. Yes, I know who you're talking about. Um, yeah. So he wrote a book about the Charlton brothers. Okay. Uh, if you know about his work, you know how thorough he is. Mm -hmm. So highly recommend that. Yeah. And secondly, when you're talking about uh, match day one and players and overloads, red mm -hmm. zoning, I remember we had um, Mark Hughes. And mm -hmm. I knew the story before, but to hear him tell it on TV was something else. Mm -hmm. How one day he played for Wales, mm -hmm against Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. then took a flight, a private chartered flight, I believe, <coughs> across the border to mm -hmm. Germany to play a cup match for Bayern Munich against Mönchengladbach. Did he? In the same day. <coughs> no. Two matches. He came on as a substitute in the second half in the cup game. <coughs> Is that right? Now, that probably speaks volumes uh -huh. about how important they viewed Mark Hughes. Yes. Uh -huh. Because yeah. he is a great player, yeah. of course. But it just shows how different it was. This would have been in the late 80s. I think yeah, it was yeah. 87 or 89, whichever year he was at Bayern. Is that right? Can you imagine that now? No, no, you're can right. <laughs> absolutely. I didn't know that. Didn't know was, that. If yeah. you ever see him, you can ask him yeah, about absolutely. it. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I just, I'm just trying to <coughs> think of that happening in today's world. It'll be so mm. different. Uh, I only have a few minutes left, mm. and there's so many more things. I haven't even touched on your time with Sunderland or Aston Villa. Mm -hmm. So you have to promise me that you'll come back yeah, to Malaysia. Yeah, we'll we'll absolutely, definitely come back. And we'll do a follow-up interview. No problem. Um, the final thing I'm going to ask you is, how does Martin O'Neill like to relax? Because we all know that, well, okay, maybe not everybody knows, mm. but a bit of trivia is you enjoy criminology, and, mm. and we've discussed this, and I think you were surprised I knew who Peter Sutcliffe was and mm. Yorkshire and all sorts of murders. Mm. 
I think humans have a morbid fascination. This I really mm. do, which is why true crime documentaries do so well. Yes, I think that's right. But um, what else do you like to do? What, what, what occupies your time? You've just published a book, I'm mm. sure. Mm. Took up plenty of time. Yeah, it, it took about about six months. You know, I I, I started. I, I wrote it myself in the sense I started longhand, and uh, putting pages together, scoring out little bits. You know, adding little bits here and there until my two daughters said, "Dad, you know, there's actually easier ways of doing this." <laughs> but I didn't want it. I still wanted to continue a longhand, and so uh, so that took a little bit of time. In, but in in, in general, uh, if you're asking me about about certainly in, in terms of management. When I was managing, it was really, it was really all-consuming with me, um, and I remember having a conversation with Gordon Strachan, and Gordon uh, said that uh, yes, listen, after a defeat in this, on a Saturday, let's say, he would obviously be uh, pretty perturbed by it, but he could he could leave it aside. He could go out in the evening time, and you know, whether it would be an enjoyment, but at least he could forget about it. That's not my nature, you know, I just, I, I just, I know defeats would kill you, absolutely kill you, and you would, you would still be thinking about it that night, you'd still be thinking the following day and the day after that, and that's so it was all consuming. And the example I'm going to give you is this, Adam, really funny. When I was at Wickham Wonders, my children, my two girls, well and truly grown up now, very small kids, both at primary school at the time, and, uh, Aisling, my second daughter, was just about to, uh, um, just about to go to uh, to grammar, and um, uh, she um, realizing very very quickly that her father's moods depended on the result of the game, and that we could enjoy uh, if we had won Saturday night spent in some some Chinese restaurant mm. in High Wycombe or oh. whatever the case may be might be the order of the night. And uh, and if we lost, then Dad was not in the best of moods. So my my daughter, and even from an earlier age, uh, as I was leaving to go to the football game and and meet up with the team, she would race out to the car, and just shout to one down the window. I'd wind down the window and say, "Dad, just win, just win." So that's that. Uh, that is absolutely right, and she continued that there for years and years, honestly. And her last words to me, even at international level, Dad, you know, just win, mm. just win the games because everything's fine when you win. So in terms of relaxation, I'd, I I would have I would have had an interest in recent years in golf, for instance. You know, I don't play it often enough now, and I'm definitely a fair weather player, and I'm not 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 good enough, and I've got to a stage where I. I'm not even bothered anymore about improving, and that's that's not me. I would like to have improved, but I don't. But um, you talk about criminology, watching those particular things, yes. But in in terms of management, when I was a manager, it really was Adam. It was all consuming. It was it was taking up my it was taking up a lot of my time. Then just talking about that there, you know, seeing, feeling as if you'd seen your children, and uh, and then realizing that that. You know, actually, they're adults now, you know, mm. and they've grown up. And you didn't really see it. And um, and the final thing I would say to you about it, I remember the great manager of, of uh, Tottenham Hotspur called Bill Nicholson. Who won the title. Absolutely. And um, he... <clears throat> um, and Bill Nicholson uh, led his daughter up the aisle to get married. 
And at that moment, he'd realized he had not seen her growing up. He'd not, you know. And sometimes you do feel like, you know, and, um, and that's, that's been the case because um, management, management to me, I just, I, I yeah, it, it was everything I, you know, I, I had to make, I had to make it a success at Wickham because where did I go after that? And I really, I put heart and soul into it, really. And, you know, I was at football matches right left and centre. I knew, I knew, I knew where Muzzy is it was, for instance, because I used to watch Chelsea Reserves play at Kingstonian every, every second Monday night. So I knew where the players were. Now, not that Muzzy is it would ever come to Wickham Wonders, but I'm just saying I knew where they were. And uh, my two children, <coughs> one day I was, um, I, I had to go to a game at VS Rugby mm. to watch a game. And um, and I had to. There was something that happened that I was running late, so I collected my children and wife, both of them from school. We drove up to VS Rugby when I was manager of Wickham, and my children, as I'm watching the game, they're doing their homework in VS Rugby Social Club. So it's you know I put the hours in, I put the miles in, and I had to make Wickham a success. Otherwise, where do I go? And that's when I say that um, in the book, I actually thank the Wigan players for it because, you know, if they'd down tools, if they weren't, hadn't been listened to you, if they'd not listened to you, uh, you at all, then, you know, second, you know, where do you go then in management? Mm. You know, that you, you might never have got another, another opportunity to go, to go elsewhere. So from those viewpoints, it's fine. So in terms of uh, relaxation, it would be really, it would have been... Uh, I hate to say this, it would probably have been uh, too all-consuming for me to have had too many hobbies in that sense. Do I like other things? Absolutely. Do I love history? Absolutely do. I'm fascinated by it. Uh, and, uh, and now that um, I, even on the plane on the way over here, much as I, kn I know exactly where Kuala Lumpur is, but again, it was just refreshing myself, you know, to find out the, the distance that I had travelled to get here. So all of those things still are important to me. And um, but the, the the football became really, really all-consuming, particularly as a manager. Okay. Well, I think all that hard work has certainly mm. paid off. Uh, I don't often get to speak to someone as an OBE mm -hmm. as you are, and you got it back in two thousand and four. Uh, that would be right. Absolutely. And yeah. You think of how much you've achieved since then. Yeah. It is extraordinary, remarkable, and I, I need a part two of this, if I'm being yeah, honest. Yeah, honestly, we'll definitely do it. Yes, if you're going to invite me over again, I'm, I'm definitely coming. 110%. Okay. Martin, thank you so much, and It's sir. a pleasure. No My problem. pleasure. My no, honour, Thank I you. Say. Not at all. And we thank hope you've enjoyed it as well, the one and only Martin mm. O'Neill, whose book hopefully will be launching in Malaysia soon, because I've been searching for it. It's not mm. out just yet, but it will be soon, I'm mm. certain.